they are leaving that one, and they're on their way into New Jericho, which is about a mile south, and it's the city that was built up by Herod the Great as this great kind of palladial place. And it's a rich city. And so if you were a blind beggar, where would you be? Somewhere you could intercept people who are coming into this rich, wealthy place. You know, if you want to catch fish, go where the fish are, right? And, uh, and so Bartimaeus is sitting along the road, and he hears that Jesus is coming. And so he starts hollering, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. And son of David here is not just a reference to Jesus' physical lineage, his descent from David. That if you go back enough greats, you know, according to Matthew's genealogy, I believe it's 14 generations between David and Jesus. If you go back enough of those, well, then David is the ancestor. No, it's not simply that. This is a messianic title. This is indicating that, that blind Bartimaeus who can't see can see what a lot of others can't. That Jesus is the son of David, the Messiah who was to come. And he knows that Jesus can heal because rumors have gone all over the country about Jesus healing. I said uh, at one point in this series that there are, in total in the Gospels, 53 days of Jesus, uh, no, 53 different miracles, specific miracles of Jesus on 43 days of Jesus' life. So that's better than one a day. If you were that vigorous uh, on doing, your, doing miracles, uh, word to get around about you too. Jesus' ministry lasts three years, but you only get 43 days of it in the Gospels. And the majority of the Gospels is spent, obviously, on the last seven days of Jesus' life between the triumphal entry and the crucifixion and resurrection. Okay? Okay. Um, a lot of people don't agree with Bartimaeus' characterization of who Jesus is, the son of David, the Messiah. And so they're all telling him, hey, be quiet. Be quiet. Shut up. And it says, the text says that he shouted all the more. You can't shut this guy up. It's like, what are you going to take away from me? I can't see. I'm begging for a living. <laughs> What, I'm going to be socially ostracized now? <laughs> Come on. Uh, Son of David, have mercy on me. He shouts all the more. And Jesus hears. And rather than just ignore this guy, like a lot of people I'm sure did, he says, call him. And the man comes over. And he puts, Jesus puts this man right in the center of attention. And he says, what do you want me to do for you? And he says something very interesting. He says, Rabbi, I want to see. And it's, he's not saying that because Jesus, he's not, Jesus isn't asking this question because, you know, he's somehow confused. I mean, it's obvious the guy is blind. But he's saying this so that everybody around will have an awareness of what is going to happen. Is Jesus going to validate the man's claim in front of everybody who's just told the blind man to be quiet? Yes. And it's also a way for, the, for Bartimaeus himself to express his faith 
eyeball to eyeball, as it were, with Jesus. And he and it and the text doesn't bring this out. Uh, the NIV doesn't doesn't personalize this the way it is. But in in Hebrew, how it reads is my rabbi, my master, my Lord. It's not just rabbi in general. It's a personal form. My rabbi. In other words, the one that I am looking to as Lord and Master. I want to see. And Jesus says, go. Your faith has healed you. And the man immediately, again, this is Mark's favorite word, immediately, the man sees perfectly. Now, let me be clear. Uh, Jesus is telling the man that his faith is a condition for being healed, not that the man's faith is the power which provides the healing, okay? That's an important distinction. Uh, sometimes I think, uh, you know, you hear about people and they pray for things and they, if they don't get it, they go, someone, someone will try to helpfully tell them, well, you didn't have enough faith. No, <laughs> that isn't the issue. Who does the healing? Jesus. But it was the fact that the man had his personal faith in Jesus and pointed to him as my Lord that was the indicator of the faith that the man had. Okay? Uh, and the result of this, as a result of this, this guy, Bartimaeus, becomes a follower of Jesus. And in fact, uh, commentators will tell you that one of, the, one of the ways that we know the names of these various people who are healed and have things happen to them in the Gospels, is that, and how do we get this account? How do we get this record that these guys wrote? Well, obviously, the guys who recorded this were eyewitnesses of some of these events. But in other cases, you know, like with Luke, where he says, I've carefully investigated all of these things, where did he get this story from? From Bartimaeus, who's still a follower of Jesus in Luke's day. Lots of evidence that, um, that it was eyewitnesses, people who experienced this, who are testifying to Jesus, not just the apostles, guys like Bartimaeus himself, who are still there. Uh, Mark continues here this story. As they approached Jerusalem and came to Bethphage, in Bethany at the Mount of Olives, Jesus sent two of his disciples saying to them, go to the village ahead of you and just as you enter it, you'll find a colt there which no one has ever ridden. Untie it and bring it here. If anyone asks you, why are you doing this? Tell him, the Lord needs it and we'll send it back here shortly. They went and they found the colt outside in the street tied at a doorway and as they untied it, some people standing there asked, what are you doing untying that colt? They answered as Jesus had told them to, and the people let them go. And when they brought the colt to Jesus and threw their cloaks over it, he sat on it. And many people spread their cloaks on the road, while others spread branches they had cut in the fields. And those who went ahead and those who followed shouted, Hosanna! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the coming kingdom of our father David. Hosanna in the highest. Jesus entered Jerusalem and went to the temple. He looked around at everything since it was already late. 
he went out to Bethany with the twelve. Now, this event is traditionally known as the triumphal entry. It's what we celebrate when we celebrate Palm Sunday. And we often think of it as being this majestic, glorious, great announcement of Jesus' messianic identity. And Jesus, I think, certainly intends it to be that. He intend, what he intends is to consciously fulfill in his own life, Zechariah, who said, Behold, O daughter of Zion, your king comes to you, gentle and riding on a donkey, on a colt full of a donkey. And Jesus says, I know that in this village ahead of us, there is a colt, the foal of a donkey that no one has ever ridden. Go get it and bring it back here. If anybody questions you, tell them the Lord needs it and, and they'll let you have it. How does Jesus know that? Well, when you're God, lots of things become obvious. Um, <laughs> so Jesus comes in riding on this colt. And people are shouting, and they've got palm branches. And a lot of us think, oh, this is a cool celebration. And people are recognizing Jesus as Messiah, but they're not. Not really. You see, according to John Grasmick, who's a, a New Testament Greek scholar at uh, Dallas uh, Theological Seminary, uh, part of what they're saying is part of a traditional Passover celebration. And Passover is coming. It's going to be on Friday. It's Sunday. And what you would do if you were a, a good, pious Jew is that you would every year make your pilgrimage uh, up to Jerusalem, and you always went up to Jerusalem because Jerusalem is up from everywhere around there, and you would sing the Psalms of Ascents, uh, which are Psalm 113 to 118, that they would sing with reference to Passover. And as you were going up, you would sing these psalms. Let me read you part of this one. This is from Psalm chapter, uh, chapter one, uh, Psalm 118. Okay, let me read you this one. Listen to these words. O Lord, save us. Hosanna, in other words. O Lord, grant us success. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. From the house of the Lord we bless you. The Lord is God, and he has made his light shine upon us with boughs in hand. Join in the festal procession up to the horns of the altar. They're doing what the psalm says, to cut the boughs and join in the procession up to the horns of the altar at the temple. And a lot of times... At this time of year, they would be a famous rabbi or an honored person who would come through as part of the pilgrimage group. And so they're honoring Jesus not as Messiah, not as the one who truly has come in the name of the Lord, but just as a famous rabbi who happens to be in town. And they're singing and shouting, probably uh, with antiphonal praise, the words to Psalm 118, those in front and those behind, are singing the words to this psalm, not realizing that they are being fulfilled in their very presence. As Jesus is riding along, the one who has come in the name of the Lord is right there with them. 
fulfilling Zechariah just as God had predicted. He is, according to the words of this same psalm, the stone the builder rejected that became the capstone. That became the capstone. And they don't even see it. Even Jesus' disciples don't recognize it. And the Roman authorities don't recognize it. This is normal. This is why Jesus doesn't get crucified on Sunday. Because they see this as just part of the people being festive. It's Passover. And hey, they sing this song every year. This is like people who pray and, and engage in tradition year after year after year. And they don't have eyes to see what is right in front of their face. And by the way, I think the reason that Mark records Bartimaeus' healing and the triumphal entry right parallel to one another is so that we see the contrast between a blind man who can see that Jesus is Messiah, even though he can't physically see at all, and people who are surrounding Jesus, who are singing words about the one who is to come, the Messiah, who are singing words about being part of the festal procession up to the horns of the altar, carrying boughs for the, the stone the builders rejected, who is right there in front of them, and they can't see him for who he is. Can't see him. The Messiah came, and no one noticed. No one had eyes to see except Bartimaeus. Not even Jesus' own disciples recognize what's happening. In fact, in one of the Gospels, it records that that at the time this was happening, they did not understand, but later they understood. After the resurrection, a whole lot of things looked different in retrospect. Huh. Wow. Shazam, we missed it. (laughs) Okay. Um. All of a sudden, it's clear, but here they were unclear, and they missed it, and they missed it. They are praying for God to save them. Hosanna. And God has come to do exactly that, and they don't even see it. And he went to the temple as kings traditionally did at the beginning of their reign, and no one noticed. And so he looks around, and he goes out, because, hey, it's the end of the day, and it's late. He goes out back out to Bethany, probably to stay with Mary and Martha and Lazarus. And the next day, he gets up. Let's look at it here in the text. The next day, as they were leaving Bethany, Jesus was hungry. And seeing in the distance a fig tree in leaf, he went to find out if it had any fruit. When he reached it, found nothing but leaves because it was not the season for figs. Then he said to the tree, May no one ever eat fruit from you again. And his disciples heard him say it. On reaching Jerusalem, Jesus entered the temple area and began driving out those who were buying and selling there. 
He overturned the tables of the money changers and the benches of those selling doves and would not allow anyone to carry merchandise through the temple courts. And as he taught them, he said, is, is it not written, my house will be called a house of prayer for all nations, but you have made it a den of robbers? The chief priests and teachers of the law heard this and began looking for a way to kill him, for they feared him, because the whole crowd was amazed at his teaching. And when evening came, they went out of the city. Now, Jesus and his disciples are heading there. There's, it's just a short little road. Uh, Bethany is about, I think, two miles outside of Jerusalem to the east. Just, just this little village. And they're headed on the road, and there's no crowd this time, just Jesus and the disciples. There's no honors for the famous rabbi, and Jesus is hungry. Why is he hungry? Because these guys are living on the support of other people who believe in his ministry. Jesus is wearing the clothes that he owns. They don't have any food. And he goes over to this fig tree, and fig trees, I I don't know much about them. We don't have them around here, but from what I understand, from what I have read, that if you see a fig tree in full leaf, normally it will have these little edible buds that come out in uh, late March and early April, right around this time. And peasants in Israel in Jesus' day normally ate these. And then at, at later in the year, late May, early June, the first, these buds would drop off, and then the first real figs would start to form and fruit and ripen. And so Jesus sees this tree in full leaf, and so there ought to be these little buds. They might not be all that tasty, but they're at least edible and nourishing, right? And so he goes to look for them, and they're not there. And the tree looks really good. It, it ought the, there ought to be fruit on it of some kind, but there's not. And in fact, the absence of these little buds indicates that this tree is not going to bear any fruit at all that year. And so Jesus curses the tree. Now he does this, this is Jesus' last miracle that Mark records prior to the resurrection. Obviously that's a pretty big one. But this is the last miracle that Jesus records during his ministry. And Jesus does this as a symbol because in Israel... The fig tree is a symbol of the nation. And if you wanted to talk about being blessed by God, you would talk about each man sitting under his own fig tree in his own vineyard with his own flocks and herds. And the fig tree is a symbol for the nation, which looks very good on the outside. There's lots of people going to the temple. It's, uh, there are people who are very religious who are even willing to uh, tithe their mint and their cumin, you know, and count those little bitty specks, give God a tenth of all the specks, you know. Um, They're willing to be very extreme in their outward obedience. It looks really good. Everything's in full leaf, but there's no fruit to nourish anybody. And the symbol of that is what is going on in what is called the area that's called the court of the Gentiles. Now, Israel, under their covenant, had a different 
worship system than we have. They had sacrifices and so forth, but, that, but it was always God's plan to include Gentiles in his kingdom. And so when the temple is built, the outer court of it is called the court of the Gentiles. And the idea in, under the Israelite covenant was that you were to come and see, to taste and see that the Lord is good. And that Jews were supposed to be such an example of a light for the nations, the Gentiles. They were to be so holy and pure and different from, their, from all of the neighbors around them that, they, that the nations around them would say, what nation has ever had God so near that he lives among them? And it was supposed to be obvious that God lived among them because of the radical distinction of their lives from all of the paganism that surrounded them. And this court of the Gentiles was the specially designated place for Gentiles, people like you and me, to come and worship the living God and to be in relationship with him. And instead, what is going on is that there is a flourishing market in sacrificial items. If you had a Greek coin or a Roman coin, it normally had the picture of a ruler on it. And the law says you are to make no graven image, right? And so you can't pay for your sacrifice with one of those idolatrous coins. Oh, no, you need Jewish temple money, which we will be happy to provide for you at radically inflated exchange rates. And by the way, that lamb that you brought for sacrifice, no, 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 that's not good enough. We need a pure lamb. I'll be happy to buy that scroungy one from you at a greatly reduced price and sell it to some other schmuck uh, at a greatly inflated price later. <laughs> but you need to buy one of my lambs to be acceptable for sacrifice. You need to buy one of my doves. And then on top of that, there's so much commercial activity that's happening that lots of other merchants do not recognize this as a sacred space. And so they're just got their little push card of apples or whatever, and they're using this as kind of the cut through to another part of town. Well, I got to get to the other market. I'll just go through this one. And Jesus gets a whip that he makes for himself. He has checked out all of this activity the night before. He gets a whip and he goes through the temple and starts knocking over tables and uh, driving these guys out with the whip. Now, there are temple guards who have spears, uh, swords, this sorts of stuff, right? In fact, Herod's Antonia Fortress is connected to the, temple, to the temple grounds. And nobody bothers Jesus. You know, I, I kind of wonder why sometimes, you know, based on the pictures that we paint of him, you know, these Renaissance photos that you get of uh, this bearded woman on the cross, you know. You go, somehow I don't think that the dude who is hitting people with the whip, driving them out of the temple, and the soldiers don't mess, is the same guy. Jesus drives these people out. And, and when he stands in front of these merchants and says, this is God's sacred space for the Gentiles, you're going to have to find another way through than through here. They all go, Okay. Take their cart and go. And then he begins to say to them, God says, 
my house will be called a house of prayer for all nations. But you have made it a den of thieves, a robber's den. What's wrong with you? And by the way, probably the reason that these guys are, have been allowed to do this is that the chief priests and teachers of the law are getting a cut of all of the transactions. But either, either way, the chief priests and the teachers of the law are offended by this because he is claiming to have higher authority than theirs. Because if they... if you know, wait a minute, I said this was okay. Well, I don't care what you said. Well, who are you? I'm in charge. According to who? According to me. And next, and over the next couple of weeks, we're going to see Jesus' authority get challenged. They're going to come to him uh, with some hard questions, and he's going to give them some hard answers back that they're going to reject. But they start looking for a way to kill him because they go, who do you think you are, chief? That you can come in here and turn over all this business that we're doing. Whipping my merchants. What's wrong with you? And But the people are all in, enthralled and amazed. Because they've never seen a guy who is this bold. And they go out, they go back out to Bethany. And in the morning, as they're going along, they see the fig tree along the road that Jesus had cursed the previous day. And it is not just dead. It didn't just have the leaves like starting to drop off. The whole thing is just withered completely from the roots up. It's dead. There's not anything on it. And Peter notices and says, hey, look, the tree that you cursed has withered. Have faith in God, Jesus answered. And I tell you the truth, anyone who says to this mountain, go throw yourself into the sea and does not doubt in his heart but believes what he says will happen, it will be done for him. Therefore, I tell you that whatever you ask for in prayer, believe that you have received it and it will be yours. And when you stand praying, if you hold anything against anyone, forgive him so that your Father in heaven may forgive you your sins. Now, this is the third time that Jesus has gone back into Jerusalem after spending the night somewhere else. So that means it's probably Tuesday of Jesus last week, Tuesday morning. And Peter is amazed. He's like, wow. I mean, I, I, personally, I think I'd, I'd be kind of jaded by now. You know, this is a guy who can make the lame walk, the blind see, the dead raise, uh, the storm still, walk on water, cast out demons. And yet, when it comes to cursing the fig tree, I would think, well, hey, that's no big deal. If he can get a dead guy alive, surely he can make a live tree dead. But Peter is shocked. He says, what about this, Lord? And Jesus, by way of answer, gives him some of the most unlimited, wide-open promises on prayer that we have in the entire Bible. And I do want to say that, that you do have to interpret Scripture with Scripture and all of that. You know, and Jesus does teach elsewhere, as do the apostles, that 
you do have to pray in accordance with God's will and all of that, okay? But sometimes I think that we use if it be your will as a way of either letting God or ourselves off the hook in advance. Because we don't really believe what we're asking for. Now sometimes we can pray that way and we can really want and believe that God can provide. And we still pray, but according to your will, O Lord. But Jesus says, ask, and ask without doubting, and you'll receive what you have, what you've asked for from the Lord. Now, I don't know how to do that, how to ask without doubting at all, okay? Um, I'm learning to trust the Lord that much. But Jesus says, if you trust the Lord fully and completely, and you pray and I would say from other scripture, and it's according to God's will, then you will receive what you've asked for. And by the way, he, he mentions one other condition, which is this, that you can't have unforgiveness in your heart toward other people. And this is one that Jesus mentions a lot. He says, if you don't forgive other people their sins against you, God won't forgive you your sins against him. And by implication, since it's in this context, uh, your prayer doesn't get answered then either. Because you are harboring pride and sin in your own heart. And you are setting yourself up as a higher standard than God. And you're saying, well, I want God to forgive me, but I don't have to forgive them because I am holy. (laughs) Okay. (laughs) Uh, You don't want to really go with that one. Because God is the standard of holiness. And he says, I forgive you, you forgive them. Now, um, this is a this is a, a interesting passage with a whole lot of content. Gives us a whole lot of insight into who Jesus is and what kind of Messiah He is coming to be. But it also presents us with some questions that I want to ask you and ask me. The first one is this: Do you recognize Jesus? For who he is. Do you recognize Jesus for who he is? Blind Bartimaeus did. He couldn't see with his eyes, but he had eyes to see what many other people couldn't. Even the disciples who had been with him all the time could not see what Bartimaeus saw clearly, which is that Jesus is the Messiah. And even those of us who recognize Jesus as Messiah, which I would hope would be all of us. I would hope that all of us seated here this morning would recognize Jesus as Messiah. But if that is not true, I would encourage you today to not let today pass without understanding and pursuing and studying and learning and seeking Find out who Jesus is and whether or not you're going to follow and obey him. Because that's the issue for all of us. Because recognizing Jesus as Messiah means more than just affirming some historical facts. Jesus was and is the Son of God who came to die on the cross for my sin and for yours and was raised from the dead. Lots of people know that. 
In fact, if you go to an Islamic country, they will talk about Isa el-Masi, Jesus the Messiah. But they do not recognize him for who he is. They do not recognize him as the Son of God who died for their sin and have not yet received forgiveness in him and a a true relationship with God. Second question, have you recognized as related to Jesus' identity is the question of Jesus' authority? And we're going to get into that more next week. Jesus has authority. He has authority over the temple. He has authority over nature. He has authority over disease. He has authority over demons. All of this we've seen all through Mark. Jesus has authority over all these things. But you know what else Jesus has authority over? You and me. And if he is your Messiah, if you say to him as Bartimaeus did, my Lord, Lord is not just a title. It's a commitment of life to following and obeying and loving and serving the one who is your master. Do you recognize Jesus' authority over your life? Last question. Do you pray in faith, believing? All of us pray. To be a Christian, to be a human is to pray. You know, there's an old saying that there's no atheist in foxholes, and that's true. When we get in the jam, we call out to somebody. You know, I heard, a, heard an old story of a guy who served in Vietnam, and he had a star of David, a, a star and crescent, a cross, you know, one of those uh, towel symbols, and, you know, just a whole bunch of religious paraphernalia around his neck. And somebody, a Christian guy asked him about it and said, hey, man, what, what's going on with you? And he said, I believe. And the Christian came back with, yeah, I, I understand that. I can see that. But what is it you believe in? He goes, I don't know, but in my position, I can't afford to make anybody mad. <laughs> okay. But here's the reality. Lots of us believe. Lots of us pray. What do we believe in? And what are we praying for? And how are we praying? Jesus says, pray with an unlimited faith. That what you are asking to be done in the future, you have already received in the present. In other words, as if you already have it in your hands right now. I'm not sure I know how to do that be really honest, okay? Um, to pray with the kind of expectancy that Jesus is talking about. Do you pray in faith? Let's pray in faith together.